Hello! We've been expecting you. I would like to welcome you to Thoughts from Aunt Wu, the Avatar podcast where we know the future. First things first, let me introduce my panel. We have Lindsay. Who can say hello now? I I did. Corey. Hello. And Charles. Hey. I am Mark. We are here to talk about episodes of Avatar The Last Airbender, but with a twist. As the title suggests, we know the future. What that means is we will be analyzing episodes with the knowledge of what is going to happen. Each of us have watched this series, I think multiple times, I think everyone's watched it multiple times, but at least once, completely through a long time ago. And the point of this show is to talk about how we feel about episodes upon rewatching it, deliberately knowing the futures. Obviously, right off the bat, spoilers. No array around it nothing we can do uh if you haven't seen this show and want to watch that's fine but be warned that we will spoil the show probably during this episode uh the entire format is built around looking at episodes in the context of what the show is coming going to do next uh and later on so there's just nothing we can do uh however the one thing i will be cognizant of is the comics and legend of korra um i we've all watched Mo, uh, all of Legend of Korra, and I, at least I know I and Corey have, and Charles, I think, have read most of the comics. We will talk about them from time to time, but I am cognizant that people who are fans of this show did not, aren't necessarily having read the comics or watched Korra, so we will try to be at least explicit that we are about to start talking about Korra or starting to talk about the comics if we do that. Um, but fair warning, it's going to happen. Uh, the next point I want to talk about is just talking about Korra for a quick moment. I am treating it as a continuation of the narrative. Yes, they are different shows, and yes, they should be looked at differently. However, for the purposes of this thing, it's one narrative. 70 years in between, and that's what happens. So we will get into a little bit of how does Korra affect our thoughts on Avatar. It won't come up as much, but there is going to be little ports, uh, points in which Korra is going to happen. Uh, so we will get into that. Uh, the last thing I want to touch on before we get into an episode discussion is that I know some people are going to hear this and say, well, TV is designed to be watched straight through. You should be analyzing episodes based on themselves in and of themselves. And I don't disagree with that. That's a point, perfectly valid opinion. But for me, with the advent of Netflix and time-shifting technology, we've gotten more and more towards binge-watching, re-watching shows very easily. So I think this is an interesting way to look at it. And the point of this is to take the rewatch concept and runs with it. So with that, I want to kick off the discussion for the first two episodes of The Last Airbender that we will be treating as one, The Boy in the Iceberg and The Avatar Returns. So I want to kick things off as we're going to kick off every single one of these with everyone's initial thoughts. Um, so I'll throw it to you, Linz. What are your initial thoughts on this, uh, on this in- intro? I feel like the very first episode in particular is a really just strong, good way of introducing the characters, the narrative, the story, kind of like even how the uh, introduction itself, it's a bit elongated. It's Katara saying, my grandmother used to tell me how the world lived in harmony and like the personalization of that. And I just feel like it's a really good kickoff to the entire show itself. And it uh, introduces the characters pretty well, especially Katara being like the strong kind of feminist. She doesn't really know her powers yet, but she wants to. You got Sokka, perfect introduction with his canoe, trying to fish. And meanwhile, <laughs> Mr. Uh, Aang Avatar, kind of reluctant, obviously to even admit he's the Avatar. Like, technically, I don't think you even know he officially is, like, labeled the Avatar until the second episode. But 
you get you get to know him more as like the innocent twelve year old kid that he was before he takes up that role of being the avatar, and it's a really interesting uh, step point, step like seven point for all the characters. I feel like. Uh, Corey? Um, I remember my first time ever watching Avatar and not being crazy about, like, the introduction episode, and when I first ever watched it back when I was in, like, early teens, it was something that didn't draw me in right away, and it's just, keep, the fact that I kept watching Avatar, who I really started growing on the characters and everything, I'm happy to say this is my third time watching the first episode, and I was completely wrong. It's really a great way to start the series, especially knowing where the characters are going to end up. Um, I thought uh, some of the exposition was forced, like, I remember in the beginning of the first episode where Sokka was like, um, oh, there you go again with your, like, your magic water, um, <laughs> techniques again. But the, the fact is, like, he still grew up with the culture and everything, so I don't think that's, like, natural dialogue. I think that's just exposition talk. So some, mm -hmm. of, the, some of the things had still kind of bothered me, mm -hmm. but I, I'm not as bothered as I used to be with, like, how immature Aang was, simply because you know why he is just avoiding the topic of Avatar completely. He's still a child, mm -hmm. and that's actually very realistic in how he should act. And knowing where Aang goes is very nice, and especially all the other characters who hold up, like Sokka yeah. is, is still perfect. Iroh, up out of the gate, oh is my gosh, still one of the best <laughs> yeah. characters ever written in television. And um, overall, I, I think um, it was a really, really good um, introduction to the series. All right, Charles. I mean, I have to agree with all of the points. <laughs> I feel like I don't have anything left to say, but like, no. Um, personally, I thought the exposition was handled pretty well. Yeah, you um, know that like waterbending is clearly part of the culture and all of that, but the way Sokka treats bending in general, uh, especially at the beginning of the show, is pretty interesting in my opinion because he's always he's the non-bender right mm. like the entire a lot of the later parts of the show are focused around powerful benders and you know their own agendas and personalities he's like the consistent character who's not but arguably evolves the most throughout um mm -hmm. yeah and then iroh is iroh mm. pretty <laughs> pretty amazing <laughs> yeah and i yeah. i really enjoyed that like, in the fact that in the, f I guess, first half of the first episode, or the first, in the first episode, um, Aang is really reluctant to admit it, and uh, that he's the Avatar, and he never really says it outright to anybody, but at the same time, it's pretty... I... I like, he, he doesn't want to admit it. He knows that it's a yeah. thing, and that he kind of, like, rel reluctantly accepts it. Um, yeah, I, I, I get completely what you're yeah. saying there. Yeah, so, uh, that was pretty cool. Yeah, and, I'll, and I'll, get in, I'll get into that in a bit when we get to sort of my uh, what I like with, in terms of setting up Aang's uh, overall character arc. Um, personally, my initial thoughts, I mean, I, I really like this episode, I th or these episodes. I think that... Um, I agree with Corey. I, I didn't like them as much uh, when I was young. I mean, I, there's always obviously like iconic parts that were great, but I, I really struck me just how like good this thing got us like really caught up on the world, but with also 
the characters, which is great. And like one of the first things I wrote when I'm watching that intro, and I love the intro to the first episode because it's mm-hmm. so like iconic, and you're like hearing about this world. But I love how much Katara's character comes through during that intro, where you like right off the bat know that she's this girl with a lot of hope and a lot of um, you know she a very positive view mm-hmm. of the world. And I think it's really like great that like an opening title crawl, an opening narration actually sets up a character as opposed to if they had just made like Roku be the opening narrator and there was no characterness. It was just like, here's what the world is. But instead they like made a guitar, which I thought was really um, great. Um, I also just love, I mean, this is a really tiny detail, but I love that Azula is the firebender in the intro that like, we're not going to see her for like another season completely and yet she's in the intro which is kind of a cool little I noticed that you know, Easter egg there. when I was watching the um, second intro just about like obviously Aang is the airbender and then I was like wait is that a, is that Azula oh my gosh I didn't yep, know that. that that is that is Azula. the 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 um what's it called the benders are Paku uh which is obviously the waterbending master uh it's uh Roku's earthbending master Sud uh, okay. is the earthbender and then it's Azula. And I was under the impression that that was Avatar Yang Chen, who was the airbender, but it could be You know, Aang. you're probably right. Sh- I'd really just sure. like to imagine that, up, that as him. <laughs> yes. Um, all right, so we're going to kind of get into um, this more specific and kind of direct episode discussion, and we're going to kind of take it, like, act by act and sort of as things go. And, and we've out- I've outlined all the episodes, and I will do an outline for episode. I'm not going to sort of read every outline in full because they get a little bit ridiculous. I'm just going to take... Highlights, but you know, obviously, with this show opening with um, you know Katara and Sokka fishing, um, I, I do enjoy that. At the end of the day, this this show open, or actually at the beginning of the day, funny. Um, this show opens with just a family, like a brother and a sister, doing kind of an everyday activity. Because I think this show, at its core, is really about like how much the war interrupts everyday people. Mm. And I think it's just a nice touch that rather than like starting with a battle or starting with like something crazy, it starts with two siblings going about their daily lives. But does it like scare you that the fact that Aang was even found to begin with was because of like just a regular fight between two siblings? To think about like how accidental everything got set forward is like kind of mind boggling. It's not like a destiny thing like in other shows. It's just like they happened to have been arguing and she happened to just go nuts at the right time and Aang was freed. So that's pretty interesting to think about too. I think that's I mean, kind that's of something. awesome. Go ahead, I think that's kind of awesome actually because in a lot of other shows you get the whole like destiny thing and it was fated to happen and whatever. Mm. But Avatar was always more of, or to me more of like a, Things happen as they go along. Nothing's, like, predetermined or anything. Some things work out for you. A lot of things don't. And it kind of sets that tone. Like, this happened by accident. A lot of things happen by accident. <laughs> like, even in the first episode, the booby trap and the... Well, oh, we'll get to that later. Yeah, I mean, I, I I understand what you're saying, Corey. And to some extent, that's something that used to bother me a lot. Because I was like, oh, it's such a dumb coincidence. But to be honest, I I don't actually mind it as much now because I think that, A, I think that what this show does really well, and to some degree this podcast is sort of a a product of that, is that I think that there is this really nice pull between something that's destined to happen without being overly explicit about it. Like, they didn't need to have a prophecy that these two kids would find Aang, but you can also very easily say that this was – 
like the grandmother says later in the episode, like your destinies are intertwined with mm-hmm. his. Like, I do honestly feel like, yes, Aang was ch- like a- a- Katara and Sokka found him for a reason, but that reason was never explicitly said, which I think is a really nice touch. At least that's my opinion. Right, I could agree with that. Absolutely, I, I see what you guys are saying, and it's just—it's just funny to me. Not—not not even more so Aang being freed. It's just the entire world is like, if you think about it, in the like in the balance here with a, a war that's being fought, and it's just funny to me how an entire war could be affected just by that like one little fight. Yeah, yeah, that's fighting true. over fish. <laughs> um, I have to say, I—I I like. That I mean, I, I I love the I mean, obviously, I love the like Sokka is sexist whole thing mm-hmm. that they they play relatively well there with you know the the show opening with Katara like yelling him about being sexist. That's just really um, funny. Um, I I also just I think that it is actually a pretty information dense scene. Like we do get a lot of Katara's like uh, character, a lot of Sokka's character, the fact that their mom died and all of that. Uh, another thing I want to touch on, and and this will be a big theme I'm going to talk about during this entire episode, but. I love how really weak Katara's waterbending looks yeah. and how awesome the you can see, very easily see the growth that Katara has through the, throughout this book with her going from like girl who can barely bend a fish out of water mm-hmm. and then to true waterbending master. Like I think this show actually does phenomenally well at actually showing growth in ability without like I mean for lack of a better term Dragon Ball Z-esque power yeah. levels. Like it's very natural. We can see the growth from here to moving forward, but they don't have to be like, wow, you've become, you know, a level six waterbender, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's, it's, it's actually funny how that works too, because I, I know you, you don't want to go too deep down into the future and especially with Korra, but bending becomes so much more complicated and like just quote unquote power levels also based on what you see benders can actually accomplish, especially when they're really big masters of bending. So instead of stating it outright, you just see it in the, the, the really unique techniques that are developed throughout the show. Mm-hmm. Yep, definitely. Um, so then, obviously, Aang is revealed, Iceberg, and then we cut to Zuko. Ah, uh, Zuko. Some, some guy named Zuko. <laughs> um, and, and here we can talk about uh, Zuko uh, and Iroh's introduction. Um, I... I'm actually not that high on Zuko's intro- introduction. No. Um, I don't love, at least in this first scene, I think he gets better, but I actually don't know how much, how I feel, I don't know if they've set up his actual character arc all that well. Like, other than the honor thing, I'm not entirely sure I truly understand Zuko much. I think it would be, until we get to his, uh, the whole Agni Kai with Zhao, I don't think we really get into Zuko's psyche relatively well. Um, but I'm sure Corey wants to talk about Iroh, so I'm just going to let Corey talk about Iroh now. I mean, what else is there to say about Iroh being probably the best character ever written? It's just like, especially knowing Iroh throughout the series and knowing what, why he does what he does, he, you see it right away. You see he cares about his nephew. You see every single type of technique he uses in training him and how he wants to mentor him. At first, he was very calm with him and being like, that's not the Avatar, just sit down have some tea, relax, it's relaxing. And then when he was training him to be a better firebender, he was aggressive and stern and every single range of emotion. He mm-hmm. was like a father. Everything about his relationship with Zuko shows how much he just cares about him. And just in the, the first episode, forget about the second episode, in the first episode, 
everything is on the table already, and it's just some of the best writing and I think one of the best introductions to a character I could remember at least. Anyone else want to add anything about Iroh? Okay, here here's my thing. I love Iroh uh, with like the uh, a burning flame is my heart. But th- <laughs> this just brought up this whole issue I mentioned before the podcast about the White Lotus that he's part of. Mm-hmm. So obviously the White Lotus is that group. It's like intent on creating harmony amongst the four elements and all that kind of stuff. So like Iroh is part of that, but at what point did he actually become part of that? Because at first I was like, okay, so when um, Zuko says, oh, the light, it must be the Avatar. And meanwhile, I was like, oh, what are you talking about? You've like, we, it won't be him. I was thinking maybe he's like trying to like defect away from it. So like, oh no, like it won't be him. But then he goes very gung-ho with his nephew, Zuko, to catch the Avatar. And then I'm just wondering then at what point did he actually become involved in this White Lotus? Like, when does the White Lotus actually really become, like, part of his own decisions on capturing the Avatar versus not capturing the Avatar? That's an interesting point. And it, uh, honestly, I, I never really thought about that, at, at least at this point. But, I mean, it's definitely a point. I mean, the one thing I will say is I do think that they make it very clear that the White Lotus, prior to the events of the finale, the White Lotus is not really a political organization. Mm-hmm. Like... They're a lot more of like a like a philosophical group, yeah. and I mean not that that doesn't mean that I like where I was I was he's why is interesting, but I, I do think that it is like I don't know if it's exactly at a point now where they would be like against or fundamentally against capturing the Avatar. I'm not, I'm not sure. I I do have a hard time. Like I love Iroh. I think he's a great character, but I do sometimes question in book one where Iroh's royalties actually mm-hmm. lie. Like, I would agree with you on that. Like, I'm not actually sure whether he's loyal to the Fire Nation or not. Yeah, I mean... I think he's loyal to his nephew, to be honest with you. I, I think he, especially with what happened to his son, I, I think um, I think he just has his nephew's best interest at heart and um, with his own philosophies and stuff. I don't think he's really that loyal to what the Fire Nation is doing, like what their, their mission statement is at the moment. I think he would be a loyalist if, you know, they weren't trying to take over the world, but I, I think he's completely disattached to what the Fire Lord actually wants to do with the Fire Nation. So I don't think he has any loyalty to the Fire Nation, at, at least in the first book. To me, Iroh seems loyal to family more than anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, ignore Azula because uh, she's not introduced until way later and their like personalities are direct contrast even more than Zuko's but um she is crazy she is, and she has to go she down is a special fireball in the words of Iroh well she's she's also like super intense right mm-hmm. like we see Zuko's intense at the start and then kind of mellows out over time um but Azula only ratchets that up as we meet her and then as the series goes on especially in book three it becomes like ludicrous but mm-hmm. um yeah, to me, like, Ira would be loyal to family, so in direct defense of Zuko, or his brother, perhaps, uh, he would defend them, but to the nation itself, not really. On the part of the White Lotus, I mean, I- I'd make the argument that he's probably part of it at the start of the series, because, mm-hmm. yeah, he's helping Zuko capture the Avatar, but 
he's not really putting in a like full effort to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Because um, Zuko says shoot him down, and it, from what we know of Iroh, that that would not have been hard. <laughs> <laughs> ah, that's a, that's actually an interesting thing. That's, yeah. All right. I like it. Um, and also, anything yeah, else uh, to talk about I on that? I just want to make a quick we... comment about the White Lotus. Yep. I consider the Order of the White Lotus to almost be like the equivalent of the Illuminati. That's interesting. I I would I don't take it that way, but I don't think it's wrong to it's a think that. Secret society. I have a question. In the yep. in the beginning, when uh, Avatar gets freed and the the light goes up, and Zuko obviously knew what it was. Did Iroh play? Like, he pretended he didn't know what it was, or did he actually think it was not the Avatar? That's something I've actually always been curious about. Yeah, that was kind of one of the questions. I always took that as he knows it's the Avatar, but he also doesn't think Zuko has any chance to capture him and is like, don't get your hopes up, because he doesn't want Zuko to be, like, overly disappointed. Ditto to that. Yeah. Okay, I can respect that. I mean, it's just, it's also, like, a matter of, like, if he's in this, you know, the White Lotus, and it's all about balance, wouldn't the Avatar be the best thing, or did he just did Iroh just want the Avatar to be free, and that's it, and maybe do the do his own thing, and, and possibly try to bring balance back to the world? That's what I'm trying to also think about. It's not really about Zuko. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's uh, it's it, he, I mean, part of the reason why he's such a great character is because he is complicated. He's not. He doesn't have simple individualistic motivations. Mm-hmm. Right. right. There's also a line of thought that Iroh really doesn't want Zuko to go back to the capital. I mean, we kind of see this later on in the series, but mm-hmm. maybe he just really doesn't want Zuko to capture the Avatar and, you know, spend more time traveling the world, getting more seasons, maturing, basically. Letting go of that full anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it really comes down to, like... Uh, and I think this argument kind of boils it down to: Is like there a grand Iroh conspiracy, or is Iroh just a vol? Like, is uh, is Iroh exactly where he is at the end of the mm-hmm. series, at the very beginning, and he's planned this out from day one, or is he sort of slowly evolving and realizing that Aang needs to save the world and he needs to eventually support him and get Zuko to support? I, yeah. you know. Well, also, I think it has I don't know. To, yeah, I think it's the latter. I think he's he's definitely someone that it's very patient. And I, I think he's just naturally evolved throughout the uh, the series. Yep. All right, so we get you know the the first meeting with Sokka and and Katara and obviously Appa, who you know how can we not yeah, love Appa? Flying bison. Um, I mean, really not all that much for the rest of uh, this episode up until the when. Uh, Appa is bringing them back to the tribe and Katara asks Aang if he knew the Avatar and um, I mean right off the bat like, before I get into the like emotional part of this I have to just like commend the show this show is facial expressions and it extended to Korra as well are just so unbelievably good like you could watch some of these episodes with the sound off and just look at the facial expressions and know exactly what is going mm-hmm. on and that like is so good, especially for an animated show where you don't. It's not like you have actors performing, and like you can just see on Ang's face how uncomfortable he is. And I, and I just, I, what I find so interesting about this scene is that even though it's been a hundred years, Ang essentially has been gone for like what three hours. Like he mind, leaves yeah. his, you know, he leaves his room in the Southern Air Temple, gets caught in a storm, gets trapped in ice, and woke up. Like. 
obviously he's not registering how long he's been mm-hmm. out. So it's interesting that like he just ran away from being the Avatar, and like the f- literal first thing that happens is this girl asks him about the Avatar, and I just find that so interesting that like how Ang's psyche must be like wh- how like really I just left no like I can't get a break from this for two minutes. I don't really think that's like at fault here. I mean, I, I know when he probably gets first broken free from the ice, he doesn't know how much time has passed. But then at the same time, like, I, I could only imagine it, it's in a circumstance where, like, he has to have known that he's still meeting a new person. And I, I, I just, I have a feeling that, like, it's not as, I see what you're saying and I see how he's, every time it's kind of brought up, he, he tries to avoid it with, you know, all these hobbies and stuff. And, um, fooling around and all that, but I, I don't think he's angry at the situation. I think it's just he's trying to avoid it as like a natural kid would avoid it. Yeah. Well, not... a- anger is maybe not the right word. What I what I just mean to say is that Ang obvi- like the whole point of this is like Ang is re- like rejecting his self his his avatar self when he runs away. He doesn't want to be the avatar. He wants to go live his life the way he wants to, and obviously that's mm-hmm. like Ang's character arc, and we'll, we'll we'll get into more of that in a bit. But I think that it's just really fascinating because keep in mind that like. We look at Aang as like, of course, you meet an airbender. Obviously, he must know the Avatar. There's, like, so few airbenders. But I think that's interesting is that the, like, I don't think that's actually true 100 years ago. Like, I think 100 years ago, if you ran into an airbender, you wouldn't immediately think, oh, you must obviously know the Avatar, right? right. And I think that it's, it's just, like, it shows the change in culture that, like, being an airbender to Aang is not this weird thing. It's completely normal. But to everyone else in the entire world, it's this really crazy weird thing. And I, I just – it shows how much – like I just think that it's interesting to note that Aang has no idea at this point how long he's been in the ice. So to him, this world is just totally foreign and yet it's not because it, it doesn't feel like it, you know, it's been that long. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I could see that. When when he found out he was the Avatar, though, um, back you know during his time, did only the Air Temple know, or did you know, the, yeah. uh, like the Water Tribes and everyone else catch on? I, I kind of forgot about that. No, only only the Air Temple knows. I think it was right. the thing with the toys, right? And then yeah. Because keep in mind that you're not supposed to tell the Avatar until they're 16. They told Aang when he was 12 because they thought war was coming. Right. So it, it would make sense that like the rest of the world wouldn't have caught on because in theory they wouldn't have revealed the Avatar until he was 16. So I, I would think that only the um, airbenders yeah. uh, or the, the, the leadership of the Southern Air Temple knows that he's the Avatar. All right, so that pretty much wraps up Act 1, mm-hmm. um, and now we move on to Act 2, and I think it's interesting that Act 2 opens with Aang's storm nightmare, and, like, we're going to see this, like, a lot, because this is, like, you know, obviously a huge deal, um, but I also think it's just interesting that, like, they're, like, they show us this storm that, again, doesn't really get talked about again for, like, like, nine or ten episodes, I think it's episode ten, is, is the storm, so it's, I don't know, it's just interesting that, like, how much they're willing to play, like, the long game here, and be like, oh, let's yeah. throw this you know, seven-second clip in here 
with very little context, and then will and for a payoff way down the line. I think it. I think it was needed though, because if you if you really think about it, like you have to start planting the seeds now, or else a lot of people, especially in a pilot episode, would would always. Th- I think oh, you. It's better off to wrap up loose ends, like so. You you give them a taste of it, knowing you're going to jump into it, whether than wait. How did it even get caught in the iceberg to begin with? I think that's good storytelling. I think just planting the seeds for how they're going to jump into it more and giving the audience just like a a kind of a hint of what might have happened was actually a very good uh, piece of writing. No, I, I completely agree with you. It's just a lot of a lot of shows don't do this, and I wish that they did. Like, I wish more shows were willing to be like, we don't care that this isn't going to be brought up next episode. This is going to be brought up, ne- you know, much later in the season or three seasons from now. And like, I think Avatar just like a really good job of being like, well, no, we're going to throw this one little thing in here, and then we'll we'll deal with it later. Oh, absolutely. Yep. I mean, it takes a lot of guts to do that, right? Because shows get canceled pretty easily. Um, yeah, but, but like whether they get canceled or not, you're 100% right. Like, it's something that only helps. Because even if they got canceled, so small. oh well, them not doing it or doing it wouldn't have changed anything. So as like you know, Mark said, I, I think it's just such good writing that I wish more shows took advantage of. Well, Corey, I don't think that's actually as true, though. Because, I mean, keep in mind that like they have twenty, was it twenty four minutes for for Last Airbender to tell a story? Like every second they spend on something is a second they could have spent on something else. And while this is very small, and I don't think it in any way detracts or hurts this episode at all, I, I understand why network, like why like network execs are hesitant to be like throwing little things in here because so it does to some degree. Like it doesn't actually like to some degree. This scene, I don't think it really adds all that much to the to the to the pilot from the first time you watch it i think it's all it does is sets up something for later now it's in the same book and the, the book was already ordered so it's really not that big a deal but i do think like i understand why it's no, kind of dangerous it just it should be done because it's the it just it's better storytelling yeah all right so then we get to the uh we get to the southern water tribe um and the first thing I, like, I found really interesting about this scene is um, when Aang first comes out, you see like all the kids kind of backing away from him. And I really like like the idea that this is a world mm-hmm. where people are very scared of outsiders because, I mean, the Southern Water Tribe has obviously been basically cut off from the world for a long time. These kids have probably never seen anyone outside of this village other than maybe yeah. Fire Nation raids. So like, I really love that they've baked in a culture that fits the narrative of this war. Now, would it be just because of the war, or is it just because they're they're pretty much water? Uh, they're there's mm-hmm. on the poles. I, I feel like them just being isolated would be a natural reaction with or without the war. I'm gonna disagree with that because you don't get the same impression from the Northern Water Tribe. Like they're clearly interconnected with different parts of the world. Um, they they travel the world, no? Uh, I mean, the, the Northern Tribe is, is I, less I, cut I, off, but I think that, like, there's... I mean, I, I, this gets kind of difficult because there, it is 70 years later, but you, the world of Korra is so fundamentally different when it comes to, like, the treatment of outsiders. And mm-hmm. I think that that shows that that's a world that has been in 70 years of peace. While this is 100 years of war... There isn't much trade. There isn't much, you know, cross-continental movement because wars prevent that. And I think that that's just 
it, I think it makes a lot of sense that this that, that this culture would be very rejecting of outsiders because of because of the war because you're not getting the type of like cross continental trade that you would get in a in a during peacetime. Well, I just I just think think about it even like with like an American going to mm-hmm. like Japan, and you're, you're you're you stand out in the crowd. You're you're taller than. You know, people, you look a lot different. Aang looks very different. I, I, I could just see it being a cultural gap. Yeah. I mean, he doesn't look like someone from the Fire Nation, and I, I guess the only thing they really have to fear is someone from the Fire Nation. So I'm just hesitant <laughs> to say that the war is the reason why they, they, they would have stepped back. I feel like with or without the war, if they'd been isolated more so from the rest of the world, it would have been the same reaction. I just think that they, the reason that they're isolated is because of the war. And I think that we see it like throughout, like in, 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 like on Earth, we see a lot of this where like during, especially if you look at ancient history, like during times of war, cultures become more isolated, more cut off because we don't mm-hmm. have cross-continental trade. We don't have outsiders entering villages. Um, and I think that's just a big part. I mean, I, it is kind of somewhat difficult to say because we don't have much evidence of what this world was like 200 years ago. So, it, you know. I understand what you're saying, so it is like I can't be definitive, but I, I at least took that very much as like this is a world where outsiders kill you, so you're afraid of outsiders. Right, I can respect that. There's also the mm-hmm. part where the um, people left in the village are like generally the elderly or the very young. No, not at all. Like, we see this a little bit later with Sokka quote-unquote training the <laughs> males of the village for defense oh, yeah <laughs> but, you know like is maybe like part of it is just who's left the people that would be more i guess exposed to the world have already left two years ago to go you know fight the war maybe just everybody uh... else left hasn't seen it <laughs> perhaps not because but of that's... isolationism but just because they're young but that's still a consequence of the war, saying that like the men of the tribe are gone. That's still a consequence of this being a wartime. Yeah, you're right. That's true. Now, now that we're in the village, uh, mm-hmm. we bring up Katara's uh, grandma. The, does she remind you a lot of what Katara turns into uh, when you see her as an elderly in Akora? Do they like now that I'm mean, seeing it backwards, like? She looks exactly the same almost, and I, I would argue they kind of act alike too. I would say the argument is Katara, when she's old, is like her grandmother. I, I, I think, you know, that's the, the way I would phrase it. But yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously. I mean, I think that's done very much on purpose. I think that they, and like I said, I don't want to get like too deep into like the, the start of Legend of Korra, but I, I think obviously they try to start Korra with like, a familiar face and a familiar face in a familiar way with Cora being like her grandmother. And we do end up becoming like our, you know, like our okay. parents and like our grandparents. Right. Sorry, Linz. I, I definitely agree um, with that. My, my biggest question though so was how old is Zuko? Then like, we get point? to some Zuko like training uh, and we touched on this a okay, little so bit. Here's my question. One thing okay? I want to bring up on this, He's and this is something that I've never understood about the series. And I'm curious how you, you guys feel. Prince. Who's been I, like, out Iroh, or Zuko for a long just time. straight up bullies Iroh into teaching him the advanced set. Sets, and, and he hasn't learned any advanced I'm curious like, what you guys think about that. sets at all. Like, I just, that part bothered me. Um, I think that's very in character for Zuko. Um, I think that, um, and Iroh's reaction is very in character with him. So I, I think it's 
very good in terms of how yeah. it ends up playing up in a relationship anyway. This isn't the first or last yeah, time. Yeah, I know. I, I'm just you like, you have all this possibilities of training, and, and you're still just a beginner. If no harm, no foul to it, he'll play along, <laughs> but then... If he does believe it will be harmful to Zuko, he does push back. So I thought it was, you know, very good. No, yeah. Anybody else? Yeah, I mean, it does. The, I just... Yeah, I agree with that generally. Yeah, no, it's, it's fine. I mean, if, if not, that's fine. I'm just, I just want to make sure before I start. Yep. Mm hmm. 16. Mm hmm. Zuko is a really bad firebender when he's young. Like, that is straight up clear. Like, yeah. oh, Azula is a firebending prodigy. Zuko sucks. But does it not make perfect yeah. sense to you? Look at his relationship. Oh, no, I don't disagree. It makes perfect sense. I'm just saying that, like, I'm, like, answering Lindsay's question. Like, I think that that's very clear that Zuko just straight up is not a good firebender. I, I, I wouldn't. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> no, but Lindsay, look at his relationship with his dad. He doesn't have a father figure. Like Azula is a prodigy. Like I, I, this makes perfect sense to me how he doesn't know more advanced techniques. To be fair to Zuko, I, I think he's just compared a lot to ridiculously powerful people. Like the rest of his family is ludicrously good at firebending, even. Like, his dad, even before the comet, is ridiculous. Azula's Azula, and Iroh is literally the only surviving uh, firebender that was taught by dragons. So, compared to them, yeah, he's always going to look bad, but think about it this way. He's better than everybody else on his ship, right? And granted, he does beat Zhao two episodes from now. It's not like yeah, he's terrible, but like I, I do like I do think that they deliberately like Zuko. I think like has trouble with like learning the advanced, adva truly advanced fire and bending, and like he he can't lightning bend. Like he never learns that. I also feel like the writers had a different idea for mm -hmm. Zuko, especially in the in the first book. I, I feel like they just wanted him when they first were writing him to be an antagonist. And then I, I felt like they, they decided later on how they wanted him to, to change and, and, you know, eventually be a part of Team Avatar. So I think he was just supposed to be another antagonist of uh, the day and not supposed to be that big of a, you know, a, just a challenge to Aang himself. So. I mean, this gets kind of into the whole death of the author, but that's actually not true. Like, the, 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 uh, Brank is on record saying that they knew Zuko was going to be Aang's firebender teacher from day one. Oh, okay. um, and I mean, I... I, I would I actually very much disagree with that. I think very clearly they like the Blue Spirit episode is so clearly a setup for Zuko and Aang to become in that role, yeah. like the mentor and uh working together role, um for later this season. So I, I don't I, I might be agree with you like in this one episode. I'm not sure if they put anything in here that would lead you to believe Zuko is not an antagonist, but as soon as we get going, it's very clear that Zuko is like actually a good person. That takes a while, no? Yeah, but that was the gamble with Avatar, right? They set up a lot of far-reaching plot lines. Like, things that you see in episode one to, you know, book one even, and then that stretch into the second or even third books. Mm-hmm. 
So it takes a while, but I mean, clearly the payoff is pretty amazing, right? Mm -hmm. This does um, Sokka ever arc exactly? Because you, you see him, and he he's like he becomes more of a, a, a leader moving on. Mm -hmm. But I, I feel like I'm trying to think of what characters arc the most since the beginning to the end, and I, I think Zuko's probably the best. But like, who would be in second, though? Ang. You think it's Ang? I mean, I look. This is Ang and Zuko's story. Like, I, I think that's kind of unfair to be like to compare. As much as Katara and Sokka and eventually Toph are main characters, they are in Ang and Zuko. I, like this, this story is built for them. I mean, I would argue though that Zuko has an arc. I mean, he goes from like bumbling idiot, you know, sexist, you know what, to like legit mil military commander. Like he eventually be like he matures a lot throughout this story. Um, I don't think his like I don't think he has a central like question baked into his story like Aang and Zuko do, but I think that his arc is going from like somewhat immature kid to like really legitimate leader. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, in especially in the in the pilot episodes, you see like he's trying to play grown up, basically at, at the start. You know, he's super serious about defending the tribe, but it's clear that he's just a kid trying to fill adult shoes. And at the end, like you said, he's a commander. He leads people. He commands people in battle. And they respect his uh, decisions unilaterally. And that's... It's a really... No, in some ways, it's an interesting mirror to Zuko uh, from the pilot, because they're both people whose father figures have been absent somewhat, uh, they've got not, mm -hmm. perhaps not a chip on their shoulders, but you know something to prove. Uh, for Zuko, it's for his honor to you know, regain his honor. For Sokka, it's to show, or in some ways, show his father that he can do a good job at bleeding the remnants of the tribe. And they both kind of mull out and grow into bigger people over the course of the series, which is great. I actually completely agree with that, and I actually have a, a very interesting question. Do you think the men that were assigned to Zuko, A, respect him as a leader at this point, and B, do you think, like, these are, like, the worst of the worst in the Fire Navy? Because that's how, like, you know, they're just, like, henchmen, like, almost like stormtroopers in Star Wars, and the reason Zuko's getting them is because he's a disgraced prince? Um, the answer to your first question, at least for me, is no, I don't think they respect him. I don't think they respect him until after the storm. Um, yeah. Like, very specifically, because, like, we see them, like, blatantly disobey him early on and then eventually kind of grow to respect him a little bit. Um, I don't know. I, I, I have a hard time differentiating anyone in the Fire Nation army, like, that isn't an officer. Like, I have a hard time like, telling the difference, which, I, I mean, I think is just, to some degree, just, like, the Stormtrooper, like, you know, uh, mm -hmm. trope that, like, they're mooks, there's not really much to say about them. I, I don't know. I, I think Zuko, like, Zuko clearly has resources. Like, he has, like, Iroh and him have money. They can go buy a lot of stuff. Like, I don't think that they're, like, literally given nothing. I think they're just given, like, but it's not that powerful a ship at the same time. So I, I, I don't know if it's, I think it's somewhere in the middle. Um, so that actually transitions really well, uh, like talking about uh, Sokka being a kid into like the next thing I want to discuss, which is when Katara and Aang are uh, – they, once they catch the penguins and they go penguin sledding, um, 
you have this really interesting exchange where Katara says, I haven't done this since I was a kid. And then Aang responds, you still are a kid. And I think that that, like, is also a really central part of this show that, like, we forget how young these people are. And I think it's just interesting that, like, how much, like, this show only lasts a year. These are really young people who end up with an incredible (laughs) amount of responsibility thrown on them. And it's just interesting that you have, like, Katara and Sokka who both, I think, view themselves as adults at the start of the show and yet have such a long way to go in terms of maturing um, in certain aspects, whether it's Katara maturing into a powerful waterbender and teacher and Sokka maturing into a leader. And I just think that that's, like, such an interesting line that you have. um, Because you have Aang who comes from, like, a time of peace and where things are genuinely good and yet... So for him, a childhood is childhood, while for Katara and Sokka, who have grown up in this, like, really harsh conditions, their parents are, you know, one parent's dead, one parent's gone, and have essentially had to assume adult roles, (laughs) to them, they're not kids. And I think that's just this interesting dichotomy about sort of wartime and peacetime. (laughs) Here we go. Absolutely. And it's also the way uh, uh, Katara and... um, and um, I'm sorry, her her brother. I, I can't believe I'm Sokka. Sokka, yeah. Wow, how they're just, they just <laughs> terrible. <laughs> I had a long day. So how they just like embrace their their roles in terms of adulthood. That's why she would say something like that. While Aang did the complete opposite when he was given this responsibility. And I don't think it's because Aang. Yeah, I mean, yes, obviously it's because Aang is immature. But I don't think Aang felt the necessity. If this was in wartime like an actual wartime and just was dropped on Aang that he was the Avatar, I think he would have stepped up to the plate. But the fact that it was just a pending war and there was nothing tangible meant Aang didn't want to grow up as quickly as he needed to, while on the flip side, Katara and Sokka needed to. They were just forced into it mm-hmm. and they had to come up to the plate because of the, uh, the pressure of everything going on. I completely disagree with what you just said about Aang. Um... And it's just I, – I want actually was going to talk about this like actually when we got to the end. But you know what? We're here, so we're going to talk about this now. To me, Aang's entire story arc is about him accepting or rejecting being the Avatar. And even when he finds out now that the Earth is in like incredible peril, like the Fire Nation is nearing victory in the war. He finds out pretty quick – like not that far off that Sozin Khan is coming back. And Aang just – for lack of a better term, dicks around for a while. Like, he goes, rides a giant fish, he goes and rides in a cart in some, like, weird little city. Like, he, like, really does not take this thing seriously. And it it takes a really long time for Aang to take, like, this whole war thing seriously. And I think that, like, I don't know if, even if Aang was, like, told that the war was like literally going on in imminent i don't know if he would have responded well i think he might have responded poorly because (laughs) like he really does he wants to be an airbender he wants to be free and just sort of do what he wants and hang out with his friends and like it's interesting how much of this series ang is just like just not doing anything well it's it's, I, I think where you're wrong there is let's let's compare it to a very small thing in real life Let's say there's a kid who's getting threatened to get kicked out of his house. Like, it's coming in the future. It, it's coming. There's no pressure yet. Everything is still paid for. There's no real pressure to move out. He's not going to be as rushed as someone that's already homeless. And I feel like in a, in a war where if you're starting to see his loved ones 
getting lost to the Fire Nation, and he actually watched the, the extinction of his people, and it was in the middle of it, he would have stepped up. I, I feel like with all of his mm -hmm. mentors gone now, he didn't really feel the pressure still because he had no one to set him on the right track from his from the Air Nation, but that's the only reason I don't think he matured as quickly as he should have. <laughs> I'd agree with that. Oh, go ahead, Charles. Um, but basically no, he's... um, Yeah, Aang's not attached to the world. Everybody, except for Boomy, <laughs> everybody's dead, man. Like, all of his childhood friends, all of the people Boomy has had, uh, that he knew are gone. He's got no attachment to the world. He barely recognizes you know, anything about the world at all. He goes back to the temples, and he's, you know, he, like, that's the only thing he remembers. Everything else has changed. So it's like, I imagine it's something like someone with amnesia coming and then being told, like, oh, you have to help us fight in this I revolution. Have... And being like, wait, but why? <laughs> I don't have any reason to do this. I'm just a person. Power or not. Yeah, I... I, that kind of brings me to the question I want to ask, and I'm going to ask this question like many times throughout this podcast. But okay, I so... really do believe that Ang saves the world for Katara, and I know there are some non-Katang shippers here, and I don't want to totally devolve this into a shipping conversation right now. But I honestly think that Ang saves the world for his friends, and specifically off that, he saves the world for Katara, and I, I, I really like. I think that's a really major part of his character is that Aang, it, like, it doesn't become real to him until he sees his friends, like, involved in this giant battle at the, the Northern Air Temple and or Northern Water Tribe. And, like, I feel like it's, like, Aang always steps into gear when his friends are threatened. But when it's, like, the abstract idea of the world, Aang is a lot less keen to it. And I, 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 like, I genuinely believe that if it wasn't for Katara, Aang would not have ended up saving the world. And not from a he just teaches her, you know, he's her waterbending teacher or anything like that. But from like a, a psychological perspective, I don't think Aang could have done it without Katara giving him a reason to be attached to the world. I um, completely disagree. Um, especially, I, I was like almost, I was on the fence of half agreeing with you, but then you mentioned Katara again. I, I think it's, it's bigger than even the world. I think Aang has a very good connection to the spirits, to animals. He loves every single living thing. And I, I, I think with how extreme the Fire Nation gets later on, and, and more so just threatening his friends, but threatening not only every bender and non-bender, but living things and spirits, I, I think he would have kicked it into shape with, with or without Katara. But the question is asked to him. What do you care more about? Saving the world or Katara? And he chooses Katara. I, I, I think... The, the, I still don't think the pressure was on, though. I, I, I think if, if push came to shove and it, the, literally the entire world and spirit world could be threatened and, and it's versus Katara, I think it would have been a hard choice, but I think he, it would have, he would have ultimately... Known what had the boot. Okay, here, here. I, I, I just need to step in here. Hold yeah, on, hold on. Yeah, go ahead. Let, let, let me talk. Yeah, here. go ahead. So, <laughs> I feel like, Mark, you bring up a really good point. Like, yes, he does save the world for Katara and his friends, but I, I feel like that's in the beginning. And as he kind of accepts that role of the Avatar as the series goes on and everything, and he, he travels more around the world, he meets more people, he sees exactly what the Fire Nation has done to all these people. He sees the destruction. He sees like death. How families have been like torn apart. 
So what I fe- I feel like what yeah Katara definitely did have a role in like pushing him towards it. I feel like then his own humanity basically kind of has him really accept the role of saving the world because that I feel like that's just what he feels and is right at that point. Well, no, let, let let me be clear. By the end of the series, I think Aang has mostly internalized being the Avatar and at that point is saving the world out of duty and out of he needs the world like he cannot let the Fire Nation burn the entire world down. Like I, I at the end of the series I agree with that, that Aang has, has met enough people and has realized he needs to sort of do this in terms of like his overall um him being the Avatar. But at the start and what eventually gets him there is I think his friends, and specifically Katara, and, like, my point is that Aang, like, is given, like, is given the choice, like, in a very legit, like, powerful scene of either you can have the Avatar state or you can have Katara. Pick one. And he chooses Katara. And I think that, like, there's a big part of this, like, Aang, like, Aang's entire, obviously Aang's entire character arc is him accepting the role of the Avatar, and I think that to some degree, Aang begins to accept it because it can protect Katara and protect his friends. And he never would have gotten to the point of the end when he actually internalizes it without his friends pushing him. So then let's go into the characterization here. Is Aang inherently selfish? I don't think selfish is the right word. I think Aang is inherently an airbender. But forget forget about the word airbender here. He's an I mean, airhead. He has a respect for all life, obviously, and I think he eventually gets the stakes of it. And even as you said, when he knows the stakes of it, you you, you say he would pick. I mean, not, you say it actually happened. He would pick Katara over the Avatar state. Isn't that a selfish thing? Like one versus literally all. Well, I to me, what it is is that. Being an airbender is about freedom. Like, that's the airbender everything, is freedom and and all of that. And to me, Aang is almost always chooses, wants to choose freedom over anything else. He wants to be with Katara. Now, it's not so much that he's, I, I don't, is it he's choosing Katara? Is, it, is, he, is he choosing the freedom to be? be with Katara? I'm not sure. I, I don't know how much that's splitting hairs, but I think that it's not that Aang's selfish so much as it is that he he has been brought up in a culture that says you should be free to do as you please, or not as you please, but f- you should be free. You should have freedom. And being the Avatar is the literal opposite of freedom. He has a destiny that he has to deal with. He has to save the world. And that's not freedom. And I think Aang rejects, like, repels against this. Aang has all this trouble dealing with the fact that he doesn't, at times, being the Avatar clashes with what he wants and shouldn't he be free to do what he wants? Um, I mean, doesn't the Fire Nation represent a complete lack of freedom more so than the Avatar does? Like, in order to be the Avatar, you could, you will, you know, like, the funny part is without conflict, let's say there was no war right now and for whatever reason, you know, Aang was freed from the ice, but no war ever happened. I would argue with you that Aang would never become the Avatar. He would never embrace his destiny and, and do what he has to do and bridge the spirits with the, the human world. Would you agree with that? Um, 
kind of. I mean, I the the question then is, what is the Avatar's role in a time of peace? I mean, we see we get a little bit of talk about Avatar Kirin, but like, I I wouldn't be surprised if Aang travels the world and like you know does some spirity stuff because he can and it's fun, but. Does he ever self like self-realize his identity? Yeah, I think you're right. I don't think he does without the war. But I also don't think that he does without Katara pushing him to. Yeah, and I, I don't think Katara would have pushed him at all, again, if there wasn't a, a specific need to do it. Which circles back to the original thing. Like, is Aang inherently selfish, or is it just an immaturity that eventually gets sorted out? Because then, like, again, like, you, you eventually find out what Aang grows up into as well. So it's very interesting to think about. I mean, keep in mind how much freedom Aang has as a child. Like, he's clearly been all over the world. He's friends with Boomy. He's friends with Kuzan. Like, he's clearly traveled mm-hmm. a ton. And to some degree, it's interesting that, like, the monks give him the freedom, because that's what airbenders do, to sort of travel the world and make relationships and, like, meet people. And yet eventually he be has to become the Avatar and then he doesn't have any of that freedom. He can't just go to Bo- Omashu and do something with Boomy because he's got responsibilities. I think you're, you're attributing freedom way too much to him being an airbender, more so than he's only, you know, a young child still. And I think a lot of young ch- children are like that, more so than just being an, an airbender uh, trait. But, I mean, I mean, I guess we're, I, I guess we have no other way to do this. Zaheer in Korra is about free. Like his entire thing is taking the airbender philosophy of freedom and applying it to world politics. But airbender philosophy is all about freedom and about, you know, removing your, your let go of your earthly tether and all that stuff. And it's like the same with what we get with Guru Patik. Like it's, it's this, uh, I mean, obviously it's tantric Buddhism. Like that's what this actually is in terms of like looking at real world philosophies. But it's, it's all about people should be free and be able to make their own decisions. Like, that is that is airbender philosophy at its core, and I think that's the internal struggle that Aang has, is, like, what is his... Is he an airbender, or is he the Avatar? Or is he somehow some mix? And I think eventually he becomes a mix. He doesn't actually end up choosing, and I'll get to... We'll get to problems with that I have with the finale, you know, a couple of... A year from now, but, like... <laughs> that's like to me that's Aang's character arc and I I have a hard time seeing Aang accepting the shackles that are responsibility unless he's really invested in it and the thing that makes him invested in it is this girl he's in love with I guess that that left everyone speechless. Apparently. I feel like I feel like I, I, I want to give other people another time to talk. I think I could go back and forth with you forever on this. But. I, we know we've 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 had enough conversations, Corey. Linz, anything to add? I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's just there's so many like deeper things in here that we. I feel like maybe we should talk about it as the episodes go on. Oh, we will. This, Like I said, this is a question I'm going to be asking a lot throughout this, this podcast is like Aang's motivation. Yeah. But I just – we got yeah. into it a little bit and like I said, we're just going to kind of flow as we go. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So then obviously they end up on the ship. Um, I, I This scene is like okay. I mean it's, it's pretty exposition heavy. 
Um, I mean, I, it's really just not that much. To, I don't think there's anything to talk about unless you guys want to talk anything about them being on the Fire Navy ship. Nope, just something capture rescue. Yep. Something Wait, actually what? that I, I are we talking about the abandoned ship or the? Yeah, the the, the the abandoned ship they they go in when they oh, uh, set the off the flare. Ship. Yeah. Okay. Oh, whoops! I was right. I was going to the yep. next ship. Okay. <laughs> so what you were going to say was not about that, Linz? No, it was about Zico ship. <laughs> I'll take that as a no. All right, I, so I that pretty no. much wraps up uh, the first episode, the boy and the iceberg. Uh, so now we're going to move right into Avatar Returns. Uh, we're going to be treating the, the the first two episodes as a single episode. It is a, a to be continued. Uh, I, I didn't. There's really the break is is honestly pretty arbitrary. So I don't see a reason to to not split them up or to split them up. So I think we're just going to go in, um, mm-hmm. and. Right off the bat, we get Aang and Katara returning to the village, and this is an interesting question. Does Sokka actually have the power to banish Aang? Um, he, I, I think he's like a de facto leader there, no? You know, here's the thing. I would say no, because he's not the eldest. Yeah, he's like the eldest male, but he's still, like we were saying, kind of he, he's just a kid. I would consider the leader of the village to be the grandma. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with you, and I think that that's the truth. And the reason I bring this up, and you kind of brought it up about Sokka being the oldest male, is we see later on in the Northern Air Temple, like or the Northern Water Tribe. I've done this twice now. God, um, the Northern Water <laughs> Tribe is like a completely patriarchal society. Women have basically no power whatsoever. And I'm interested yeah. is like obviously um, the uh, Katara and Sokka's grandmother left because she wanted to get away from that. And I'm curious, like. Is this explicitly saying that, like, the Southern Water Tribe is not a patriarchal society? Or does the fact that Sokka banishes Aang almost say that it's kind of a patriarchal... Like, I'm, I don't know, I'm just... This kind of gets into, like, a little bit f- further down the rabbit hole than I think we really need to go, but I, these are the kind of things that interest me. I consider it to be more like Sokka, he... Well, he himself is like, okay, so... All, all the guys are gone. I, I'm getting older. I'm. I, I gotta. I gotta help protect everyone. Like I have to take up the role of like I have to help everyone. I have to be the one to, like, be the protector essentially. And I feel like that's his response to it. I don't think it's necessarily like that. He doesn't believe his grandma can make the choices. I feel like he just wants to follow in the role of the leader that his father had. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Not, not to say that he's not sexist because he is, but I, I feel like in that context. Mm-hmm. So how do you guys feel about Katara like being like, all right, I'm banished too. I'm leaving with Aang. Like, how do you guys feel about that? Like, they just met calm each other. Calm the hell but, down, yeah. Katara. You, like, cal- calm down. <laughs> no. Like, no. <laughs> You're going to abandon your friends and family who you've known your whole life. For some little bald dude with a big fly, flying in quotes right now, in bison, that you met like 15 minutes ago, like, you gotta calm what, down. What, you're not attracted to men with giant flying bisons? I mean, if I knew them for more than 15 minutes, probably, but mm. this I, isn't about me, it's about Katara. Uh, okay. I, I disagree. I think she was <laughs> just trying to stick at the Sokka, just like, you know, sibling thing. I think it was more so, I think, I know Sokka's wrong about the situation, thus, I'm gonna you know, be against him. It's not, I don't think it's a matter of him just liking Aang over his, 
his family and brother. I think he just like my brother's wrong here. Like screw she. you. She. That's what I said. No, you said it. I considered it to be more like <laughs> she sees right now. She sees uh, Aang as like her way out to to the Northern Water Tribe, and so she's got she's got to stay with him. Like she wants to learn how to do water bending, and even when the grandma officially says, "Oh yeah, Aang, you're banished." She tells her grandma, like, are you happy now? The only person who could help me get to the North Pole and learn, like, you got rid of him. Like, why would you do that? And then she stomps off. So I feel like right now she really sees Aang as, like, her one way out to find the potential in herself. But if, like, Aang was really wrong in this situation, do you think she still would have done it just so she could learn waterbending? Or was it she really knew that Sokka was wrong here? I'm of the opinion that it's kind of a mix. Um, you yeah. get, a, like, throughout, right, you get the feeling that her waterbending's not really appreciated by the remnants of her tribe. Uh, Sokka calls it, like, magic water stuff and doesn't really respect it. Um, you know, her grandmother doesn't really say much or, anyth- or comment anything about it either. But Aang is like, oh, that's awesome we can learn it and at the you know at the northern water tribe and so uh for someone to hear that like it could well have been and we i I guess we don't know but it could have well been one of the first times she really got appreciated for that gift and maybe that's not something you want to give up Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i completely agree with that yeah, I mean, I, I personally took that more towards, like, Corey with, like, Cora having or, uh, Katara having such a strong sense of, like, right and wrong, and to her, banishing Aang is wrong, and she wants to sort of make a point. But at the same time, I also, like, there is obviously the, uh, the waterbending part of this. Um, that's mm-hmm. a big deal. Um, so I, this is not something I just want to, like, go on, like, a five second of, like, uh, how much I love. Zuko and Sokka getting dressed for battle for me is, like, literally perfectly executed in terms of scene. Like, this to me is, like, a perfectly designed, perfectly executed scene. There's not a single line of dialogue, and we get, like, the perfect differences between Sokka and Zuko, between Water Tribe and Fire uh, Fire Nation culture with, like, Sokka, like, putting on this war paint and being very traditional while Zuko is being, like, dressed by servants. You have this music that fits perfectly with Sokka getting dressed versus Zuko getting dressed. And it's just, like, this scene is so unbelievably well done. And it's, and again, no dialogue, music's perfect, and mm-hmm. I, I just, I love it. I love this scene so much. Absolutely agree. That's one of the strongest uh, traits of this show, and it continues on too. So you're right. Um, so then the the ship lands. Sokka tries to fight Zuko, and well, no, that don't, that don't go no well. Um, although though Boomerang Boomerang <laughs> comes back. Yes, when it came back, <laughs> I was like, yes. Our first appearance of Boomerang coming back. And just as a quick aside, nothing to do with Avatar here, but I was listening to Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me this morning, and apparently they found the remains of an Australian uh, person who was killed by a boomerang like 5,000 years ago. Or I don't know if 5,000 is the right word, but like an ancient yeah, person, people... and it's like next to a fossilized boomerang, and it's really kind of hilarious. So, Yo, listen, just, people just, doubt boomerangs. Bo- don't. Boomerang. They'll kill you. Boom- you do always come back. 
Um, and kill my I do. Enemies. I do enjoy Zuko, like the first real Zuko, true Zuko temper. Like a lot of mm-hmm. lot of temper there. Um, also, another like thing I wanted to say. I I love the scene when Aang sleds in on the penguin. I mean, it's it's silly, but it's like the perfect type of silliness for this show. And like the music's hilarious, yeah. and it just like. Oh my god, the Avatar just rode in on a penguin and knocked Zuko on his ass. Like, that's hilarious, but great. That right there for me is this hashtag goals. Go ahead, Corey. I was going to say, like, that's what kind of, when I first watched it younger, turned me off to the show. And I guess seeing it now, it doesn't bother me as much. And that says a lot considering, you know, I'm I'm older, so you would think it would just get worse with age. But, um... I could feel like with a newcomer that knows nothing about the show and is going in completely blind, it might be uh, off-putting, especially if they're older. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, the thing, though, I, I love about like this show in general is like the, the fact that they're just willing to weave in a lot of humor. And I think that it actually adds to the maturity of the show rather than subtract from it because it doesn't like try to take itself too seriously, yet it is really serious. And I think that like, that's the right way to do seriousness is not to be like, create like oh we're just gonna be super over the top and crazy serious we're just gonna talk about serious issues in a mature way and then if there's comedy there's comedy right but do you think it was just like at the wrong time just because of how serious the scene was Zuko? Uh, i don't know i mean i think that like obviously this is meant to be like kind of the first fight and i mean i also keep in mind that like ang is clearly not trying very hard like like, at all. Yeah. Like, Aang is so powered down in this scene. And that, like, always kind of I found interesting. I don't know. I, I can see what you're saying in terms of, like, this is not this is not at the same maturity level as, like, what we're going to get later on. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I just, I always enjoyed that scene. It just, it's fun. It's, it's cute. It works. I also kind of consider it a really interesting way of introducing the Avatar to Zuko. Because... Keep in mind, like, him and most of the world probably think that Avatar is a hundred-year-old man. And then in comes this 12-year-old kid on a penguin, and he finds out this is the goddamn Avatar. Like, what? Mm-hmm. And it just kind of, like, it knocks him off his feet from what he was expecting, really. Like, it just, it shows him you really don't know what's going to happen right now with this. Mm-hmm. Everything you know is a lie. Yeah. Um... The other thing is, like, right right after he gets in there, um, we get, and this is now, this goes back to what I was talking about before with the Katara and Aang, um, you're a, ch- a kid line where we get um, the, where Aang says to Zuko, well, you're just a teenager. And it's, like, another one of these moments of, like, Zuko is young, and yet he's already spent, like, three years of his life searching for the Avatar. And, like, it's just interesting, like, how, how old this world, even though Zuko is probably the, like, I was not sure. I was going to say Zuko's the least expected by the war, but that's not really true. But like Zuko, who's even on the like winning side of the world, has had to grow up really fast because of what's happened. Mm-hmm. Well, he's also. I don't. I wouldn't say Zuko's a, a winner, even with the Fire Nation. I mean, Zuko's a disgraced prince. He, he, no matter what, he has it pretty bad, and it's just like a saving grace that the Avatar happened to come back, or else I think he would have been on an endless quest and never would have met his father's expectations. Yeah, I mean, Iroh does say it in, like, in the storm that, like, the Avatar gives Zuko hope, so. Yeah. Um, this is kind of unrelated, but I think, honestly, that was the intent when he was sent 
it's like go on this wild goose oh, yeah, chase definitely. and yeah, so yeah, it's um yeah, come back when you find the avatar, not <laughs> fatherly love. So then, obviously, they leave, and then you know, uh, Katara and Sokka are like, "Oh, we gotta, we gotta do stuff." We get a really, a really nice, passionate defense of Aang from Katara. I, I, that I enjoyed. Um, and then, I mean, all right, this is this is the first time we're gonna we're gonna have this particular discussion, but you know, now's as good as time as any. Another question I'm gonna be asking a lot, and I know Corey and Lindsay, your answer is always gonna be no, but whatever. Um, <laughs> the line that Sokka said when Sokka says, "We're going to save your boyfriend." At this moment, is Katang inevitable? No. Not, and I'm not even saying that because I don't ship it. I, I think it, it could have been... I, I always... Even when I first watched the, the series ever, I thought it was always just going to be a matter of Aang having a crush on Katara, but Katara never yeah. having feelings for Aang. It really generally shocked me when you they actually do get together. So I, I feel mm-hmm. like it's not from that point. Because they easily could have went the other route and just been like you know, Aang having a crush on her just because she's, like, a, a pretty older girl and she never had yeah. the same feelings for him. Fair enough. I will just, just, just full disclosure, I, I, I am a full-on Katang shipper, so my bias <laughs> on that one will come out a lot. I just want to make that very clear from the beginning, so before people, like, yell at me of, like, oh, you're biased, yeah. I know I'm biased. Um, my answer <laughs> to that question at this point is no, I don't think Katang is inevitable from this line, but I think it is, like, no, it is interesting that they're sort of played with it right here yeah i think it's Lance, just Sokka like just it's being Sokka. what i don't think it's playing with it i think it's just a brother fooling around with a, a sister it's a very common line like "Ooh, look it's your boyfriend it's like a normal thing a brother would say to a sister to embarrass her i understand that yeah. but in the realm of television which we are in you know what? usually they don't put lines in like that if they're not going there yeah, but they <laughs> sometimes they do. And it's if, true. Yeah. If there's any show mm-hmm. that and doesn't... Reich are trolls. Yeah, exactly. They are trolls. I... <laughs> That's true. So there you go. <laughs> um, all right, so we can we can move on from. Well, Linz, anything you want to you want to add to this? No, just kind of the same as Corey. Just like it wasn't just automatically like oh yeah he he said it damn they're getting together like no okay all right i i I just i again that will be a question i bring up a lot um when things we get katang moments um just because it's one of the interesting things about like looking at the future is like looking at like the development of that ship that eventually does obviously you know they have Mm -hmm. children together yeah i understand um all right so what I think is, like, really interesting is comparing Aang, uh, once he's on Zuko's ship, like, the power level of Aang here compared to when he was in the village. And, like, I just think it's interesting that, like, very clearly Aang is not taking this seriously and winning a lot. Like, he just, like, easily breaks himself out, uh-huh. which I think is just kind of cool. Of Like, oh, wow, Aang actually is pretty good at this whole airbending thing. I don't. I think that's a problem too. I think it discredits Zuko from the very start, and that's not something I really like. And uh, I think you're. you're well, I'm not. Good. I'm not really at the Zuko part. Like just, just when he's like beating, when he just like gets away from the the guards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but that's just classic everything trope. That's one of the most. That's the oldest trope in the book. Oh yeah, obviously. Um, no. Then, then getting specifically into the. Um, 
what's it called, into the, the fight between Aang and Zuko. I actually really like this fight. Um, and I really like yes. this fight, mo- like, partially because, A, it introduces um, uh, the... Because well, airbending is obviously, uh, if anyone's watched the uh, Avatar Creating the Legend uh, things, which, if you haven't, they are on YouTube and they are great. Just search Avatar Creating the Legend. Uh, water, air, airbending is based on uh, the Chinese style of Bagua, and Charles Chan might be able to speak to this better than I can. I don't know how experienced nope. he is with every Chinese martial art, but I'm racist. <laughs> wow, and since he's chi- and since totally he's, chi- since he's Chinese and I'm racist, I have to assume that he must know everything about fighting. Oh my gosh. <laughs> hey, yeah. I've, watched, I've watched Ip Ma with you, Charles. Yeah, you... <laughs> Clearly, I'm a master martial artist. <laughs> Clearly, Wait, Charles, you are, are you actually Donnie Yen's progeny, right? <laughs> No, you no. Uh, you're gonna you single hand. Are you gonna single-handedly win today? World War Three? <laughs> you know he's in. He's gonna be in Rogue One. I, I know. Mean, this is unrelated. That's but... the only reason. I like the biggest reason I want to see Rogue One is just to see Donnie Yen. <laughs> yeah, not to, no, not but to turn I... this into a Star Wars martial arts show. <laughs> yeah, but no, I I don't know the um the martial arts that they base Avatar on that well. Okay. Uh, well, it, what I know just from like w- literally just from watching the Avatar creating the legend is um, the that you have Bagua is all is circle walking and the entire point is for the the person to put their hand on the base of your spine and then walk in a circle behind you so you can't uh, ever turn to face them. And, and I love that yeah. this like this scene is literally that like this is a pure martial arts fight mm-hmm. and the bending is like somewhat secondary. And I really, really enjoy that because, like, and, and I mean, I, I kind of brought this up earlier, like, another thing, like, I, like, thing I like about, like, when I was talking before about liking how they, um, like, show, clearly show the, the sort of greater power level, uh, greater power of these characters as they, as they learn. I also love that there's legitimate, like, martial arts behind this, like, magical bending, that it's not just, like, Dragon Ball Z Kamehameha waves. Like not to pick on DBZ too much because I've already criticized it twice, and I no, like DBZ. There, I'm not like I don't think it's a bad show at all, but like I do like that there's like very mm-hmm. legit, uh, like legitimate martial behind arts behind it. it, as opposed to just like throwing out giant fireballs at each other. I'm actually very glad you mentioned that, and it's a really good point. I, I feel like even though like I, as I, I said way earlier on that like in the beginning of Avatar. It's really very minimalistic bending just to introduce what bending actually is and in the future becomes a lot more advanced. I actually like it better now where it's just martial arts with just an element attached onto it. A lot better than in the future where it's massive, giant, like whatever you want to say it is. Like earth bending becomes something completely differently. But like I like it a lot now where it's just martial arts peppered in with elements. I'll also say this, and I and this is like this kind of gets into like what certain like there's like certain fights between this show and Korra that I just adore, and I love any fight that's in really tight quarters. I think I, part mm-hmm. of it I think is just that it makes the it forces the animation to be a lot tighter and a lot like more controlled because they're in the, such a small space. But anytime there's a fight in these like really tight spaces, I think the show does really well. Uh, like there's a several fights in the show, like this one, the fight when Azula's on the uh, tightrope. Uh, during the Boiling Rock, I think is outstanding, uh, where it's just like they're in these really confined spaces, and as a result, it causes these great like in back and forth moments. I think that while there are there obviously there is something awesome to like seeing these giant set pieces to some degree, like confined spaces, I think 
benefits this style really well. This is going to sound kind of like silly, but just as I was observing the whole fight too, like how literally the entire um, ship is made of steel and everything. And just like the way that the fire then like reflects off of that. And just like, I don't know, some, I should have realized that sooner about how they obviously are not going to use wooden boats in the Fire Nation. But then just like the incredible like industrial look of it all. And then even the... Um, the window design, it's just, it's so well thought out. Like, the window design of the ship and everything, how it's narrow, so it lets in specific light, but not enough for anything to get out, really. So, that was just me appreciating the uh, design of the ship. That was my little rant, sorry. No, hey. <laughs> we love rants here. Um, so then, uh, obviously, Aang breaks out, and we get to what I think is one of the most hilarious memes of, of, of this show, where... It's uh, the picture of um, Zuko ch- jumping after Aang out, of, out the window as he tries to fly away, and it's just Zuko yeah. yelling with the <laughs> caption mark. And that's like that's the show summed up. Zuko jumping out a window, chasing after Yang, Aang while yelling. Yeah, essentially. <laughs> just, you know, fun, you know, fun little things here. Um, so then, obviously, we get the, uh, the first Avatar State, and holy shit, that was awesome. Like, I've watched that scene, mm-hmm. like, many times just like that scene on repeat that is such an amazingly good like awesome epic scene on an aside on just the avatar state i like the avatar state so much where it's a a rare serious thing when it happens like when it it's just like almost like in any other like i'm not just gonna say anime but the show where there's like a super secret uh technique slash ability that gives you a trump card i think that has to be used like when all other options failed, and I, I like it uh, when it's used like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. But I, it's also the other thing about this I think is really good is like obviously throughout this like throughout this thing I've talked a lot about how I love that the bending isn't that powerful, but it's great that they give us mm-hmm. one little taste of like this is what bending can actually be, and it's like oh yeah, that's yeah this is gonna be cool. Like this is this is gonna have fun. <laughs> I remember the first time I ever saw that. I was like, la la la. Oh, his eyes are turning white. Oh my god, he's riding the water up. It's a giant water funnel. This, sh- what, what is happening? Mm-hmm. Mark, I know I've mentioned this to you um, off this, but I'll mention to the, the other two. Isn't it stupid how the uh, tattoo glows? I, I am totally fine with it. The, the, the tattoos are a very legitimate spiritual part of the Airbenders. It, it's clearly like a legitimate part of who they are. I, I don't. I don't have. A, I mean, obviously, yes, it's there because it adds to the extra epicness and like it does look kind of weird when we get like, especially in Korra, when it's just like, oh, she doesn't have any tattoos, so she, nothing else glows. So like, I understand what you're saying, but I just kind of accepted mm-hmm. that as a part. Like the, the tattoos are a fundamental part of Airbenders whatever yeah yeah I, I was fine with the glowing honestly um i also mm-hmm. thought this was like the first moment we really understand why the avatar is a big deal because well, like you said before all we've seen up until now is like small scale bending uh just you know, small bursts of flame, or like small things with wind. Katara hasn't really shown much with water, so it's like, well, couldn't even if you had all four, couldn't you know, just a lot of normal people 
overcome those odds. But then this is like, oh shit, one person with you know mastery over their element can really make you know be worth tons of people. Can really change a war. And I also think it does set up the Avatar State episode, which is the first episode of season two, pretty well. With like, because it it, mm-hmm. it did like strike me like at the first moment I saw this, I was like, oh, well, can he just go like win the war now? Like he could just turn into the Avatar State and it'll work. And like, they actually answer that question of like why that's not possible. And I think that this you know it's interesting yeah. like how much I think this show understands what a viewer might be thinking about it, and then answers the question eventually later. Does, but, like, does Aang's, like, extreme spike in power level, or even just in Avatars in general, really what makes them so important? I always thought the most important thing in Avatar was was the spiritual bridge between the spirit world and the human world. And I don't think Aang, being even as powerful as he could become, can still stop, like, an army, for example. I still think... Kyoshi does. Yeah, but I, I, I think this is their different times. I mean, I, I, I think that you're almost, like, to some degree hitting on, like, a very fundamental philosophical question that comes into both Avatar and Korra of, like, what is the role of the Avatar? What is their most important duty? And, like, is it fighting? Is it spirituality? Is it keeping peace? Like, what is it? And I think that the – I don't think there is an answer to that question. I think that that to some degree is, like, what however you feel from a philosophical standpoint, like – determines it the most common belief is the avatar is just a deterrent he's like a a nuke where no one else has a nuke where like if you if he's against you he he could stop you he's just a deterrent of anything almost like if you think about how like the he's like a single person as an entire un if you think about it like he can like stop wars if he's just around ang is un peacekeeping force exactly that's that's sad. Ang is way cooler than that. <laughs> He's so much cooler than Ang, the white helmets and the blue. Vest. Ang wouldn't screw over Rwanda. Ooh, did I just say that? Ooh. <laughs> Come on, man. Wow, the truth is revealed. Is this um, politics we're getting into? Oh, we're getting into politics at some point, but not so much here. Oh, boy. Um, so yeah. I mean, no, ahead, the deterrent thing's like a real legitimate point, but I feel like the role of the Avatar is very related to the times that they're in. Um, we especially see this in Korra, where you get more reflection on past Avatars. The first one, arguably. Um, so, you no, know, in times of peace, yeah, their role as a mediator to the spirit world is, like, really, really important. But then... You know, they, it's, they can't really interact with the spirit world well without balance, and you don't have balance in times of war. That's why, like, Kyoshi and Aang, you know, especially during the starting, or Aang during his, I guess, one year in this entire series, are really focused on combat. Afterwards, it becomes different, you know, as he's setting up a peace for, and, you know, reconnecting all of the world. You know, in times of war, you gotta focus on that first. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's true. I mean, I, like I said, I mean, I, I just think that that get, get like there's a it's a very like I, I just I mean obviously Corey, I think it's a really good question, but I just think it it's it's one that really comes down to like your own philosophy in terms of what you think 
the Avatar is and, and is supposed to be. Um, and I think that they explore mm-hmm. that in this show. I think they explore that in Korra. Uh, and I think that we, we explore that in, like, reality in terms of, like, what is the role of, like, the U.S. military and, and stuff like that, which I think is, you know, obviously really, yeah. really cool. Um, I do enjoy that the, they end the, the – they sort of, like, come down from this, like, you know, obviously Aang destroying everything. And then, you know, we get to see Katara, you know, Katara doing a little something with ice. I love, like, the little bit of, like, Zuko – um, or uh, what's it called? Sokka hitting Zuko into the water with the "That's from the Water Tribe." Uh-huh. Like, that's this one. That's yeah. like such an such an Avatar line, and so like so perfect for Sokka. Such a Sokka um, line. I also I, I, just one like little thing I want to touch on before we before we get to the the ending here is like I like how like Katara is like legitimately resourceful. Where like she like she does this whole like ice move, and like she sees that the water goes backwards, and she just like. Says, well, all right, well, if it's going backwards, I'll just turn around and I'll do it backwards. Like, I, I think that that kind of, like, sets up, like, Katara's, like, resourceful waterbendingness later on where she, like, eventually, like, uses sweat and things like that. Like, I think we're getting to see, like, early yeah. on just how, like, Katara's, like, legitimately creative with what she does. Yeah, definitely. I feel like it, like, it just sets her up really well and just her thought process of waterbending itself. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, obviously, yeah. they're flying away, and you know, we get. Oh wait, we get, wait, hang oh, on. Go ahead. No, go ahead, Sorry, just no, a fine. small thing. But before that, when um, I thought this was really funny when we were watching the episode, when uh, Zuko's trying to get back on the ship as Sokka's getting Aang's staff, mm-hmm. he uh, he holds on to the staff to try and pull himself back up. And Sokka pokes him three times yeah. in the forehead to knock him off. I thought that was really funny for, like, two reasons. First, because Sokka sees the staff at first and says, like, what can this do? It can't stab anybody. Oh, yeah, yeah. You can't stab yeah. anyone with this. And two, because when Zuko's, like, attacking the village, he does the he exact yeah. same thing with Sokka's spear to him. Oh, yeah, that's true. I didn't I didn't catch that. That's yeah. that. That's good. Yeah. Sorry, I'm done with that. No, that's hey, to... hey, we love little fun moments like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, then so then we get to the um, them flying away, and, and we get just one more of this. Like again, the show summed up. Like, why didn't you tell us you were the Avatar? Because I never wanted to be, and like that's like we've 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 talked. I mean, I don't want to get back into like Aang's character arc again, and obviously we're going to talk about that all the time throughout this. But you know, just sort of one more line, and I and I just love. Mm-hmm. sort of looking forward at, at Korra, like how much you can compare this line with the opening of Korra where the first thing you hear from her is, I'm the Avatar, you've got to deal with it. And it's like, there's their characters yeah. separated. It's like Aang never wanted to be Avatar. Korra is the Avatar and you've got to deal with it. So that's pretty mm-hmm. much it for the uh, detailed episode discussion. So now I want to uh, talk about, like we're going to rate this episode. So the way we're going to rate episodes, um, we're going to rate episodes out of 10, um, one through ten, obviously zero or one being pretty awful, ten being bad, five being pretty average, you know. And we'll talk about our ratings um, and how that works. Uh, but before I, we actually do a straight rating, what I want to talk about is, and we, we've obviously mentioned this throughout this, but in terms of like where what you thought about this episode when you first watched it years ago compared to how you think about it now, like I know Corey, you mentioned it changing a lot for you, but especially for Lindsay and Charles, like does this is this episode what you remember? Is it very different? Is it the same you know what do you guys think i guess we'll kink things off Lindsay. go ahead okay 
So um, it's pretty much exactly how I remembered it, but I guess now, especially because I am older and never, just a bit, and um, I've also I've watched the show before. Like, I've, I know how everything happened, so I think it is a really interesting way of just looking back on everything and then just having a another reintroduction to everything, and then you get those little moments that we've just been talking about this whole time about like, oh wait, yeah, like you know, later on this happens and kind of like that. So I feel like it's. I feel like I still like it just as much as I did when I first was introduced to it. All right, Charles? Um, I, I honestly think I like it more than when I first saw it. Uh, full disclosure, I didn't watch Avatar directly at, as it was airing. I didn't watch like once a week or whatever. Uh, I've watched it twice when Nickelodeon was doing like 72 hours straight run-throughs. Yeah. So I remember I, watching some of it with you during a New Year's when we ended up at your house. Yeah, we sat on the couch and watched. Yes. Oh, man, that was, that was those sad. were really fun times. That was a great New Year's, by the way. <laughs> like 11 o'clock freezing cold, getting pizza. But anyway. That pizza hit the spot, but I don't want to <laughs> discuss the New York pizza right now. Yo, um, yeah, pizza. but anyway, like seeing it Watching it again now, uh, especially uh, knowing a lot of the stuff that comes up, it makes me really appreciate how much they, how much thought they put into the first episode, into even little things like when they're fighting in the room. Just, uh, it's partially the martial arts, but just like how their style of fighting almost reflects who they are as people, and is always circling around and kind of looking to escape because he wants to be free. Zuko's the aggressor. His Anger, you know, shows pretty well throughout uh, that episode or that half episode. Um, and I don't know, just like all of the added together, I think for me made the episode way better than what I uh, thought of it originally. All right, Corey, I know you you talked a little bit about the start, but anything you want to add uh, in terms of how this episode has changed? Um, for for me, um, again as a kid, I had a lot of problems with the some of the goofiness, like. I didn't like Aang at all when I first saw him out of the iceberg. I, I thought he it was stupid, you know, like how immature he was and all the, the penguin racing and, how, oh, oh, you're you're a kid too and you're just a teenager. Like it was, to me back then it just, it, it, it set me the wrong way and it, the other characters are what kept me watching and then eventually I, I learned to love him. But rewatching it now, knowing what I know and just ex- respecting it more, I, I think, I like it a lot more now, and I, I appreciate it overall as an introduction to the entire series. And I'd be kind of hesitant showing someone and putting my, all of my eggs that you're going to absolutely love the show right out of the first two episodes. It really depends on what type of person they are. But I do know that it, it does give you enough where if you have an open mind, it, you really can get sucked in immediately into the show. Uh, I want to ask you a question, and this is this is a very loaded question, and I'm honestly talking more about Korra than I am about Avatar with this. But you just you said this, so I'm I'm curious how you feel. Do you think that you have grown like that rookie like watching it now? Do you think that you genuinely like Aang now because you just you've cha- like your perspective has changed on him as a character, or do you think that you still don't like him but appreciate where he started because you know where he's going to go? I um, appreciate him more knowing where he's going to go, um, more so than I, I like him just out of, out of the gate. I, I, again, I, I 
even me trying to the the to poke this out of you guys, like is Aang inherently a selfish person? And again, I, I don't like going into Korra, but even knowing what type of father he becomes, like, is Aang not, like, a perfect, like, if you want to go into, like, a sci-fi trope, like, John Luke Picard, where he's just, like, a... I don't know anything about Star Trek, so I can't yeah, answer but that. I, I mean, yeah. People watching this, I'm assuming, or listening to this, I'm, I'm assuming would, you know, have yeah. just a general idea of just, is he someone that is a good person at the core in terms of he's not selfish he actually wants to be he wants the spirits and everything to live in harmony and he's someone who just cares about a girl he's in love with i i think i i give him a lot more credit i think he is actually is that person and me thinking that makes me feel like that yes i, I actually like him overall as a character knowing where he's going to end up no it just i and i ask this question uh mostly because one of the things that i feel about cora because obviously Korra gets a lot of hate, and I think a big reason it does is because Korra isn't likable at the start. But having watched all of Korra, I look back to the early parts of Korra, and I'm like, I actually love where she started because I know what she, like I know what she's going to become. And I'm curious if that's how you feel about Aang, uh, because it's interesting because I feel like that's within the fandom. I feel like it's very opposite. Like people, I feel like really liked Aang from day one, and not that that means that they're right or you're wrong. It just it's interesting that you have that opinion about Aang when I feel like a lot of people kind of see that more about Korra than about Aang, but I don't know, just an interesting uh, little sort of tidbit. Um, so personally for me, um, I'm kind of like in between, like, I like to some degree this episode has gotten a lot better for me because there's parts of it that I never no- realized how good they were looking, like, when I f- obviously first watched the show and didn't know it was going to happen, and I am like so in love with... Um, a show like this that really put a lot of effort into knowing where it's going to go, knowing what its overall story is and being willing to start off knowing what they're going to be going for. And I think a lot of television is hurt now based on the fact that they only plan one season or even one half season in advance. And as a result, a lot of the stuff that happens later on doesn't really mesh well with what happened at the start because they just didn't really know what they're going. And I, I genuinely love looking back now at, like, how well this episode fits with the rest of the show. Um, mm-hmm. But there are some things that I loved or, or I really liked early on when I first watched the show that I don't think hold up as well. Like, I didn't particularly enjoy the, like, scene when they're, when they're on the abandoned ship. I found the, um, like, booby trap kind of silly because it doesn't really make that much sense. This is, like, a... 50 year old ship and it still has a booby trap with a flare on it like there's certain things that like i used to thought were kind of exciting that i don't think i like anymore and then there's some things that i never caught that i like a lot more now so i feel like this episode is like both gone up and down for me so it just i don't know it's interesting uh but overall i i think it's a really a really great introduction to the show i think i mean there are things that they could have done better but i think in terms of like pilots for shows this is really quite up there i i I, there's no other pilots that i can Mm -hmm. think of that i'm like do a better job of truly introducing the show um a show of this magnitude of a world of this scope as well as this one um i mean there might be better pilots out there but i think for how massive this world is this show this pilot does such a great job of doing that All right, so with that, we're going to go into our ratings. So everyone has uh, given a rating to the episode, and perhaps they've changed during the episode discussion. I don't, I don't know. That's up to you. Uh, but Corey, why don't you start it off? What did you rate this episode, and uh, 
Anything you want to say about final thoughts? Um, I would never. Uh, it's going to be very hard for me to get give a ten because I remember when I asked you, "Am I rating this out of ten based on Avatar?" So all of Tal. I'm Avatar? saying all. I know, yeah, I know yeah, that, yeah. and so I, I. And if it was just Avatar, it would be a higher rating. But doing this out of all of television and ten being perfect television, um, I will probably will have ten episodes, but. I have to give it a, a, maybe a lower rating of what you would originally think. So my overall rating after thinking long and hard about you know how I feel about it is an eight, and it's a good eight. I my some of my core issues do stand where I I, I thought some of the um, exposition was kind of forced, but um, besides that point, um, you were right. It, it set up not only a universe but a massive, massive, massive universe with near perfection. Almost every character was set up perfectly and uh, it left you with questions, wanting to know what's going to happen, you know, moving forward. And besides some tiny nitpicks, um, I, I think it's one of the best introductions to a show I've seen in a, in a long time. And I'm very, very happy with giving it a, a very strong eight. All right. Lens? I'm going to give this a 9.3. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Anything? Yep. I just I feel like I feel like it's just a really good introduction to the whole series. It gets you excited for what's to come. You're not just like, oh, okay, there's a bald guy flying around. Like, no, you want to know how's it going to work out. You want to know like, okay, he's the Avatar. What's it going to work out? Like, how are they going to get to the Northern like Water Tribe? And like, what's the rest of the characters going to do? Like, what is their importance in this whole like thing? And I think it it I feel like even the first inch the first and second episodes really like opens up this whole possibility for just how large this is this show is gonna get. Yep. Charles Uh Jeez, compared to all T V uh, tough I'm, question, I, I know. I I think I give it a nine. Well I'm gonna limit comparison to like pilots because like, those episodes are special. They're crafted differently from other ones, so... I think as an introduction mm -hmm. episode, this is, like, amazing. Like Corey said, it sets up the world really well, and like Lindsay said, you get really invested in the characters. And, you know, again, uh, like we've been mentioning throughout, they set up a lot of far-reaching plot lines, a lot of far-reaching aspects that uh, really serve to pay off later on. And knowing that, knowing that they will pay off, I think it's it made me appreciate it even more, so I think it went up for me to a nine. Okay, uh, I give it an eight point six, um, which for me that's a pretty high rating. Um, I mean, it, it, to get above an eight means you're you're getting into really really high end uh, shows. Anything above a nine is like absolutely excellent, and there will be episodes just right off the bat. I know a couple of episodes that I'm going to give a ten, uh, but that is difficult. Um, for me, at 8.6, I think this is a great episode. I, 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 there's, there's very little that I would change about this episode from a narrative perspective moving forward. Um, I think that there – yes, there's a lot of exposition. I think that's necessary. I think they do a good job of keeping it interesting and adding some character development within that, in that exposition. Uh, I agree with Charles. I think they set up a lot of plots that eventually pay off. And, I mean, at the end of the day, this is the first two episodes of – what I think is the greatest piece of television I've ever seen um, and sets up 
what I think is one of the top five best pieces of television I've ever seen in Legend of Korra. So it's hard not to be pretty blown away by just like, this is the start. Um, I mean, like I said, there's, there, there are little things here and there that I'd change. And I think to some degree, there's like, if you want to get above a nine, you have to be like really special. I don't know if these are truly like anything like special that, and we'll, you know, very quickly we will get into some special episodes, but this is still great. Um, so yeah, I really like it. Uh, so any closing thoughts anyone wants to give? Um, just as a heads up for my ratings, I'm very easily amused and entertained. So low ratings for me are quite rare. That is, hey, look, we're going to, we're going to get, you're going to get it based on, I mean, this is the first time we've ever rated stuff. And, um, I mean, if anyone is like curious about like, you know, things we could talk about, like other TV shows we watch and stuff, but I don't want to too much get into that because obviously this is an Avatar and and Korra podcast. No. Uh, any other thoughts? All right, so with that, we're going to kind of wrap things up. I'm going to do a little business to sort of uh, wrap things up. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter. Uh, we are now uh, – you'll see it next to the uh, – what's it called? Uh, you'll see it next to the podcast info, but we are Thoughts from Aunt Wu. Um, if you would like to ask questions or anything, you can tweet at us. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter. I am stack underscore mode, S-T-A-C underscore mode. Uh, I mostly tweet about random esports stuff and – I'll be tweeting about this podcast when things go live and things like that. So if anyone's interested, that would be great. Um, other than that, we're going to be trying to release these uh, once a week. Uh, I will keep people updated via Twitter uh, with what's going on. But um, I hope everyone enjoyed it. If you have any questions or comments, like I said, feel free to leave them. Um, and that should pretty much do it. So this is a wrap for the first episode of Thoughts from Aunt Wu. Three, two, one.